Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, if you would. Mark's Gospel. It's found on page 837. And uh, I'm actually going to read uh, a longer passage than what we're going to be looking at today because the things that we're considering are really more of a unit. But if I preached them in one long sermon, we'd be here till next Sunday. And I didn't <laughs> want to do that to you, but I do want us to get sort of the context of, of what we're talking about. So Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse... Uh, 13. Let's give attention to God's Word. As he went out again, that is Jesus, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And he reclined at the table in the house. And as he reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and, wor and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for the fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here! And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their, hard their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. <clears throat> he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word that is given to us. We know that uh, the words that you give are words of life. So Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to give attention to these things. Lord, not just to feed our minds, yes, to do that, but to do more than that, to, to feed our souls. And we so, so we pray that you will open our ears to hear your voice speaking to our hearts and the message of your Holy Scripture today. We pray that for help to discern clearly the difference between empty religion and a real acquaintance with you, a relationship with you through your Holy Spirit. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. If you think about yourself, that's not hard to do, is it? We like to think about ourselves, okay? Now, as you think about yourself and, and your own religious piety, that is, your devotion to God, your, your reverence for God, would you characterize your soul, yourself as a rule keeper, um, a rule keeper kind of Christian? You know, are you the kind of person that you love to know the rules that God gives to us in His Word? And you're the kind of person who likes to think about those things and sort of parse those things out and think about them and, and ponder, now, how does that work out in my life and what does that look like and stuff? Or are you uh, the kind of person who enjoys those kind of things? Or maybe you're the kind of Christian who says, don't fence me in. You know, give me a lot of space. A lot of space, okay? Whatever you do, don't, don't fence me in. You know, just sort of give me elbow room so I can do what I want to do. Or, or maybe you're sort of in between those two. Maybe you're trying to find a balance. You want just enough. You want law, but you also understand you need grace, too. You want things to be just tight enough to be right, and but free enough to be alive. Is that what you're like? It's that kind of balance that is sometimes hard uh, to attain in the Christian life. Um, I guess really what I'm asking is, is do you seek to live between legalism and antinomianism. Now, what do we mean by these terms, legalism? I, we're probably more familiar with that term, legalism. Um, at its heart, it's the idea of a conditional God. A, a God who offers the gospel with conditional mercy. If you do certain things, then God will show you mercy, right? If you feel sorry enough for your sins, if you believe wholeheartedly enough, if you trust Christ with all your heart, if, if you repent sincerely when you sin, if you do all those acts of evangelical devotion, you know, if you go to church enough, if you read your Bible enough, if you observe the Sabbath day, if you do all these things, if, if you do these things, then God will show you mercy. Of course, the reality is we can't do all those things, right? At least not perfectly. And so oftentimes in the mind of a legalist, it's, it's the idea, well, if I could just do them sincerely, if I could just do them consistently, if I could just do them principally even, then God will show His mercy. Now, with such a mindset, uh, oftentimes comes certain gravity towards certain verses. And I would suggest to you that the mindset with the mindset of a legalist, probably one of your favorite verses is John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandment, right? That's sort of where, where a legalist comes from. And, 
And, but also with that mindset also comes the idea of how much is enough. You know, you know that Jesus has said in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so you're, you're left with sort of the idea that I need just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Or maybe in some of our cases, we need a lot more, right? right? We need a lot more. And then sometimes we have to ask ourselves, if you're living under this kind of thinking is, is how sorry must I be? And, and, and in the back of your mind, you hear this voice, well, more sorry than you are right now, right? It's sort of that idea. You need to be more repentant of your sin. You need to do better. You, you need to be doing more. And then maybe, and I underline that word maybe, you will feel the delight of God's smile in your life. So for the Christian legalist, and I know some of you are going to catch this, that's an oxymoron, isn't it, in one sense? You know, it's, it's sort of the doctrine of the cross is, is sort of a torture to us, in one sense, because there's... There, a Christian legalist will constantly be asking themselves as they think about Christ's sacrifice, have I lived in such a way that is worthy of Christ's sacrifice? Have I lived my life in a way that is worthy of the gospel? Now, you say, but Pastor Rick, that's biblical. Well, that's true. It is biblical as long as you don't connect the striving with earning the smile of God. That's the difference, you know, between the gospel and and a legalist. And so, how do you know if a person is a legalist, or maybe how do you know if you're a legalist yourself? Well, let me ask you this. When the Heavenly Father looks down upon you, okay, in one word, what is His thought about you? What is His thought about you? And, and if you're a Christian legalist, you would probably say, discipline. Does God feel like I'm disciplined enough? Does He feel like I'm doing enough? And the reality is we never are. Is that how you think about the Heavenly Father this morning? Or, or maybe you sort of fall to the other side. You fall in the other ditch. And that is to be antinomian. Now, kids, antinomian, that's a word about this long. But really, it just sort of means anti-law. It's sort of like against the law. It's the idea, you know, if, if the legalist's favorite verse is, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Then for the antinomian, their favorite verse is Romans 6, 14. The last part of that verse where it says, You are not under law, but are under grace. You see, they see law and grace as opposed to each other. Uh, that God got rid of the law. And the antinomian doesn't even ask about the law. Doesn't ask about the things of the law. If you ask them about the Sabbath or, or something else, they go, What? What are you talking about? That didn't apply to me. Jesus died for my sins. That's all that really, really matters. And so to ask, what does the law say, is irrelevant because Christ has died to forgive my sins. All God cares about is that I love Him and I love others. Now, of course, you know, if you, if you don't struggle with that, then immediately probably what comes to your mind is, yeah, of course, but it sort of begs the question, what does it mean to love God and to love others, Right? Well, oftentimes for an antinomian, they define that themselves rather than looking to Scripture to define what love really is. And so the antinomian says, just sort of chill out, guys. You know, just enjoy grace. Just relax. Don't be so uptight. Don't worry about uh, all these things. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 8, 9, and, and 10, in that section, he says that we are to walk as children 
of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And, and as you seek to live that out, there may be times when you are on your knees and you are praying to the Lord and you are asking the Lord, uh, ask the Lord to discern what is going on in your own heart. You're asking the Lord to reveal to you what He's saying in His Word and how that applies to your life. You're, you are crying out to the Lord for wisdom because you desire to please the Lord. And the antinomian looks at you and says, What are you doing? This is crazy. It's a waste of time. Jesus has pleased God. Just live life and enjoy it. Now, of course, as you think about these two extremes, uh, they both are wrong. Are they not? They both are wrong. Because they both, and hear this, brothers and sisters, because they both fundamentally misunderstand the heart of the God of the law. They, they misunderstand the heart of the God of the law. They don't realize that the law was given not by a harsh and cruel lawgiver. It was a word of our Heavenly Father that was given to His children that He loves so much to guide His household. That's what God is doing. And, and, and it's that heart that we're going to see in our passage, not only today, but even as we continue over the next week or so and, and look at Mark's Gospel. Well, see, in Jesus' day, the law was taught more like from the legalist perspective. You know, I mean, even take, for example, this account of uh, the people coming to Jesus and asking him about fasting. You know, they were asking about fasting, and Jesus was talking about a much bigger issue than what they were talking about. Jesus and his disciples are, are eating with the tax collectors and, and sinners. And then we read in verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, most likely at this time, uh, John the Baptist was at least in prison. He may have already been put to death. And so, you know, John's disciples fasted. They, just like the Pharisees did. I think John's disciples were fasting for a totally different reason. But, um, but fasting was a common practice in, in the New Testament. But what's interesting is, is, as you look at the Scriptures, it's interesting to note that the Old, the Old Testament really doesn't talk about fasting a lot. You see examples of people fasting, but it doesn't really command a lot. There's really only one place, and it's somewhat debatable, that is Leviticus chapter 16, where it talks about fasting on the Day of Atonement. And I say it's uh, debatable because there are some that would argue and say, well, the word fasting itself isn't used, you know, just the idea of fasting. But if you'll give that to me and say that's one place the Bible talks about fasting, then really that's the only place that the Old Testament really brings up the whole idea of fasting. And it was on the Day of Atonement when God's people would come to uh, confess their sins. However, by the time of the prophets, it had become customary to fast on a number of occasions, especially on occasions of mourning. And so you can imagine why John the Baptist's disciples may have been fasting. But by the new time the New Testament came in the first century, the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Now you ask me, why Mondays and Thursdays? Why twice a week? And I'll give you my very spiritual answer after many hours of study. 
I have no clue. Okay, they just did. They just saw fit that they would fast twice a week, and so they did. And, and you may recall Jesus even addressing this practice in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 16, Jesus speaks of this practice, and he does so in not very glowing, uh, not in a very glowing way, because in the fasting of the Pharisees, you see sort of this sense of self-righteousness. Let me read Matthew 6, 16. And, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And so that's sort of what we know about fasting in sort of an overview uh, manner. But fasting now becomes sort of a point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, not because Jesus is against fasting. Jesus himself fasted. Remember? When he first started his ministry, the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And then even in verse 20, here in this passage, we see that Jesus speaks of the time when his disciples will fast. But what Jesus is really confronting is the context by which these people are judging him. And, and you get the sense that maybe the Pharisees are part of that group that are judging him. That they evaluated things from their old perspective. They were, they were sort of judging Jesus from their time-honored traditions of men. From the legalistic, pharisaical mindset. They were judging Jesus from their self-righteousness, their self-justifying place of privilege. In other words, they were taking sort of the standards that they had deduced from God's Word, and they were holding that up and using that as a point to judge people. They are not judging Jesus based upon God's Word or His law, but their own traditions that arose out of God's law itself. And so Jesus comes not only to sort of challenge that faulty foundation, that, that faulty standard by which they are judging Him, of man-made rules of religion, but more importantly, he is coming to show them the newness of his kingdom that he has come to bring. God's rule over the hearts of men is so much more and so much greater than, than these Pharisees, these religious leaders could, could even imagine. And, and Jesus does this by giving us a number of illustrations in this passage today. In verse 19, we see the first one, uh, where Jesus talks about himself being a bridegroom. He says, verse 19, why would people uh, mourn when it's, when it's time to celebrate? You know, you certainly wouldn't fast at a wedding, would you? I mean, we have a good time at a wedding, most of us, when we go. There may be some people that are like, oh, wedding again? I don't want to go to a wedding. But, you know, if, if we want to go, we want to be there with those people, we have a good time. But it was nothing compared to what it was like in biblical days. When they had a wedding, they partied. Okay, the Jews knew how to party. And they would celebrate for a whole week long with eating and feasting. And it was a great time of celebration. And so Jesus said, you certainly would not fast at a wedding. And Jesus said, you know, that he is the bridegroom. Now, not only is he speaking of himself as the bridegroom, but really this is an allusion to his deity. You may not have caught that, okay? But Jesus hasn't really been talked about yet in terms of being a bridegroom. 
But what the Jews would have known is that God had called himself the bridegroom of Israel. Back in Isaiah chapter 62, the first five verses of, of that chapter, Yahweh is said to be Israel's bridegroom. And so Jesus is, is basically saying, in essence, I am God. And he's done that at a number of places through this text. You know, when he forgave the man's sin, the lame man's sin, he said, I forgive sins. Well, what he was saying in essence is, I'm God. Because the only one that can forgive someone's sins is the one who has been offended by those sins. And, and our sins will always offend God. And so it would only be God. And the Pharisees picked up on this. And they're like, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. You got it. But they didn't get it. You know, and well, they did, but they were very upset that Jesus would call himself God. But he's alluding here again to the fact that, that he is God. But he's also coming to say that he came to bring joy. He came to bring joy to his disciples. He didn't come to burden them with a host of man-made rules and regulations. Regulations like those the Pharisees had attached to fasting where it wasn't just that you had to fast, but you had to fast two days a week, and you had to fast in this way. And not only did they lead people to think that they were more righteous by what they did, but these rules also became an unbiblical standard by which to judge other people. Sinners were those who didn't follow the rules of the Pharisees. Likewise, the righteous are those who did. Now, if you're here this morning, I don't want you to hear more than what I'm saying. If you're an antinomian, okay? If you struggle with that uh, temptation towards antinomianism, I don't want you to hear to, to be sitting there going, yeah, that's right. So, you know, don't bind me by God's laws. I should be able to do whatever I want. I have total freedom. You know, Jesus is speaking here not against the word of God, but he is speaking here against the traditions of man that flow out of the Word of God, that these people attach to the Word of God. And so we need to be careful. I mean, you look at David. David, who loved, he's a man after God's own heart. He wrote the longest chapter in the Bible. Kids, do you know what that chapter is about? The Word of God. David says, I delight in the law of God. Psalm 119. And so, it is something that we are to love God's law, and we must not uh, uh, do away with that. Anyway, notice, too, that Jesus also strongly hints that the present condition of joy that he's talking about, that his disciples will have, will eventually go away. That it will one day actually be taken away. He, he describes it this way, that the bridegroom uh, will be carried away, will be taken away. That word taken away it's a very abrupt. It's almost like he's being kidnapped. He's being drugged, drugged. He's being drugged away, uh, taken away, and uh, then on that day they'll fast. And of course, he's referring to his mission to go to the cross, and he will go and he will die for their sins. Now, I think it's ironic, and I, I don't want to take too much time here, but it is a beautiful picture as you see what Jesus is saying that on the day of atonement, the day when when God uh, has his uh, uh, offers where the people are to offer sacrifices for this, the priests are to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people on that day of atonement that is celebrated every year. 
that's the day and the time that fasting is to occur. And then you see Jesus reference the fasting to the day of his cross, you know, of his death on the cross, tying together that idea of the day of atonement, showing that all the sacrifices that the Jews did in the Old Testament, the, the bulls that were killed, the lambs that were killed, that didn't cover those sins, Christ will die once and for all to cover the sins of his people. But anyway, let's move on. In verses 21 and 22, we see the other two uh, parables or illustrations that Jesus used. He goes on to offer another parable, which addresses the broader question about fasting and how inappropriate it is that the Pharisees and others are judging him based on their old standards. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You see, both these parables address the question of appropriateness. It is what Jesus is doing is what Jesus teaching appropriate? Is Jesus really religious enough? And I think the, the religious leaders of that day would answer that question and say, no, he's not. And Jesus is saying, in essence, you just don't understand what I'm coming to do. And so he talks in this first parable about an old garment. Now, you can imagine if, if you have uh, old clothes, um, it used to be, that if your elbows were wearing a little thin, you'd sew a patch on it. Or if the knees of your jeans, kids, were uh, you know, wearing a little thin, you'd sew a patch on it. And your parents could uh, you know, make those pair of pants or that shirt or that jacket last longer. Uh, nowadays, we just go out and buy new clothes, right? We don't, we don't patch things. Or, actually, we buy clothes that are already pre-ripped. You know, that's probably <laughs> the real thing that we do. You know, but, but the reality is, is the idea is, is that they would sew a new piece of uh, patch on there. Well, the problem is, if you use a, a, uh, a patch that's not shrunken, then as, as you attach it to the clothes, and it begins to shrink, it begins to pull away, and it actually makes a worse tear than the tear that you're trying to cover. And so that's what Jesus was saying. Then, he says in the second parable, he says, you know, imagine that you were taking new wine. New wine is wine that's still fermenting. It has those gases and it. it expands. And so they would put that wine in wineskins because the leather could expand with the wine and everything would be fine. But if you took new wine and you put it in old wineskins that had already been stretched to its max, then you, when you put that new wine in, boom, you have a mess the wineskins explode because they just can't handle the, the new wine. And, and these two parables raise the subject of appropriateness. New, clo new, clothes, new cloth is inappropriate for an old garment. In the same way, new wine is inappropriate for old wineskins. And what Jesus is saying is, is the kingdom that Jesus Christ brings is so much greater than the self-righteous efforts that people offer to please God and to be pious about. That what Jesus is bringing is, is so much greater. Uh, and so you can't just take the Judaism of that day, the teachings, the man-made regulations, 
and add Jesus to it because Jesus is coming to do something so much greater, it would just totally destroy um, the traditions of that day. And so in response, the people had to sort of reevaluate their understanding of what's appropriate or not. They even needed to reevaluate their understanding of God's laws and make sure their interpretations were consistent with the revelation of God, that they weren't just the man-made rules that the Pharisees gave. They had to make sure they understood the Scriptures from the vantage point of having seen the Messiah who had come to describe the coming kingdom in greater clarity. You know, and as you look through Mark, and we've done this uh, on a number of weeks, so I won't do it again, but as you just go through the different accounts, even in these first two chapters, you see time after time after time again, Jesus is he's showing that He has come to bring uh, a new way. He's, he's showing what the ceremonial law, uh, what it applies to as He heals a leper. Or He shows what forgiveness is as He heals the lame man. So there's no place, brothers and sisters, for our own self-righteousness as we come to Jesus. And that's what He's wanting to show these people, even the religious leaders. You know, it's interesting. One thing about self-righteousness is there can be a couple of different responses. One, there can be a response of pride. We can see ourselves as better than other people uh, if, if we are self-righteous, especially when we see ourselves obeying the, the Word of God or we think that we're obeying the Word of God. But I will tell you this, there's another side to self-righteousness too, and that is uh, a hopelessness that can come uh, when we sin, that we can think we are great in the eyes of God, but yet then when the Lord shows us the wickedness of our hearts, that pride can oftentimes become self-condemnation as we really see the true wickedness of our hearts. And we're left with no hope because previously we were trusting in our own self-righteousness. But when we see that's not there, then we have no hope. But Jesus shows us that there's a righteousness outside of ourselves, a righteousness that leads to true obedience to God. God is concerned about obedience to His commandments, not obedience to the rules of men. And while the order of the Pharisees has long since passed away, unfortunately the mindset that we see in the Pharisees is still alive and well today. If Jesus appeared in our own day and age, no doubt that He would eat with people whom the self-righteous would regard is unclean and it would offend them just like it did the Pharisees you know if Jesus came in our day and time I think he would eat with people that others might be tempted to look down upon he might eat with drug drug addicts he might eat with the homeless or prostitutes or homosexuals or, or others and it would cause great offense of some the whole point of this is, is that the righteousness which justifies us is an external righteousness. It's not what comes from us. It is Christ's righteousness freely given to us through faith, not the righteousness which we invent and to present to God. And we may know this intellectually, but too often we can trust in our own goodness and think that we are more highly than ourselves. I think even this week, I, I stand before you and I must confess I think I have had a week that has been awful 
It's a week where the Lord has shown me even the wickedness of my own heart. And I feel like there are there have been days when as much as I love my wife, I just couldn't say the right thing to her. Uh, the things that I would say, it would hurt her, and I would sin against her in my words, you know, and I just think, oh Lord, what can I do? And the weight of your sin can be just heavy upon you. And you can you can feel that sense that uh, either you feel really good about yourself and your walk with the Lord or you feel really awful. And what you may not realize is, is that even in that simple of an illustration, it sort of reveals to you that maybe you don't understand the gospel as much as you, as you, as you think you do. That maybe we wrestle and we struggle. And I confess to you, I struggle with that as much as you do. That, you know, there's just times when it's, it's so easy to look to our own righteousness. But Jesus ate with sinners to, to make this very point. That those who think themselves to be good people, um, who are just fine with God, don't really care about Jesus and His message. But those who are regenerated as, as outcasts uh, more easily see their sin and their need of a Savior. And so some of us may think that being a Christian means to lock into patterns of ritual behavior in the hopes that somehow your performance and your routine, if you get it just right, will make you more pleasing to God. That if you just do the right things, if you just come to church consistently, if you just have your quiet times consistently, you know, maybe if you share your faith every once in a while, all those kind of things will make you more acceptable to God. But brothers and sisters, Jesus says that worship, that things like prayer and singing and fasting, now hear this, that worship grows out of our intimacy with Him, knowing Him, relating really and truly to Him. Jesus does not offer us a litany of rituals to be performed. He offers a living relationship with Himself to be prized. Let me say that again. That Jesus doesn't offer us a litany of rituals to be performed. And if we do those uh, things, then we'll be more acceptable to God. He offers a living relationship with Himself to be prized. He is the bridegroom. It, it's, a, it's a metaphor to remind us of His love and His tenderness and His joy towards His people. Jesus isn't moved to love you if you say the right prayers or you keep the right religious formula. He loves you because He's the bridegroom and He loves His people who trust Him and turn from their sins to Him alone to rescue Him. You see, brothers and sisters, we can't use Jesus as a patch. He's not a patch to try to make our lives better but the king who comes in one sense to sort of rock our worlds. He's here to sort of shake us up. He's here for us to see that what we have inside of us we can do nothing about. He is the only one that can change us. It, it sort of reminds me, if, if you've ever seen this phenomenon, I know it's not common, but have you ever seen a tree that in the fall it'll drop most of its leaves, but there's still a few leaves that sort of hang on? And the winter comes, and the winds come, and in Kansas, that's a, that's a thing, right? The winds come and blow, and what happens to those leaves? They stay on there. They stay fast. And then spring comes. 
And it's a calm day, no Kansas wind or anything. These leaves are so brittle that if you crunched them in your hands, they would just become powder. And yet they stay on that tree until springtime, and then all of a sudden they fall off the tree. And you think, what is going on? All that wind, all that winter, all that stuff, and the leaves stay on, and yet nothing, and they just fall off? Well, there's a reason those leaves fall off. It's because the new buds, the new life that is in that tree comes out through those branches, and that new life pushes those old leaves off. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus Christ does in our lives. As He works in us. He doesn't ask us to be reformed or to be better or to, you know, try to do certain things, but He, through His Spirit, works His new life in us and He pushes the old out, the old religion, the old ways in which we think we can earn God's favor and He works His grace and He works His mercy in our lives. So those old things are gone and the new leaves come out. He didn't come to fix what is lacking in our lives. He came to make us new creatures in Jesus Christ. If you, like the Pharisees, you see Jesus as a patch to be applied here and there as you need Him, you will never understand the fullness of the joy really offered to you in Christ. You see, the Pharisees couldn't see that. They couldn't see that new life. They couldn't. They just saw him as a patch. But we can see him differently. It's it's not mere religion that we need. It's not more routine that we need, more ritual that you need, whether it's fasting or feasting or whatever it is. What we need is Jesus Christ. And so come, won't you come and bend your knee to Him anew? Maybe even coming to Him. For the first time. You need the great physician to deal with your sin sickness. You need the bridegroom to bring you joy. Real, true, lasting joy and love. You need the new wineskins to contain the new wine of Jesus' grace and His mercy that He works in your life. Religion has no room at all for a Christ, for a Jesus like that. My question for you this morning is this. Do you have room for Him? Do you have room for Jesus? Would you give up the, the religious ways and, and the self-righteous ways that you are seeking to live in a way that you think pleases the Lord and trust in His mercy and in His grace? And so maybe you come this morning and maybe you've had a terrible week and, and you're here and you feel condemnation, you feel the guilt and the weight of your sin, what's the solution to that? Is it to go home and try to love your wife better this week? Or is it to come to Jesus and to receive the true forgiveness that only He can give and experience a new life that only comes in Him? Let's bow our heads and just reflect upon God's Word that's been preached this morning before we take a moment and pray.
our Father, we bow before you and we praise you for Jesus, who is the great physician. We pray, O oh Lord, that, that he would do surgery on our sin-sick souls, even now. We thank you that, that he didn't come to call the righteous, the sinners. And there is not one person in this room or, or watching here today that does not qualify. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God and stands today in urgent need of His saving mercy. We thank you that Jesus is the bridegroom who loves His bride, who loves His church and gives Himself for her at the cross. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would come to know His loving embrace and that all our responses, our, our praises, our, our devotion, our prayers, our songs, our obedience would flow from the power of the touch of His love and His mercy in our hearts. And we thank You that Jesus brings the new wine of the gospel of grace. We pray that, that He would make us new vessels to contain it. We ask that He would do it for His great glory in our midst. It is in His name that we pray these things. Amen.